for those of you tuning in, we are Native women discussing topics related to Northwest missing and murdered. And thank you for just joining us for episode two, Lady Justice Listens. Today we are discussing the Presidential Task Force on Missing and Murdered American Indians and Alaska Natives, a listening session that was focused on the Northwest region. This took place on June 3rd. In the podcast overall, we look at this uh, different articles and we discuss the impacts and how things relate to the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Joining me today, I'm Emily Washings, your host, and joining me today is Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlout. On current events, June 23rd, there will be a status hearing on the White Swan tragedy that happened last year on June 9th, 2019. And then I'll get into reading the article. This is not meant to read and read out loud. <laughs> this executive <laughs> order is very wordy. Okay. On November 26, 2019, President Trump signed an executive order 13898, which resulted in the forming of a task force for missing and murdered American Indians and Alaska Natives. The co-chairs or Attorney General William Barr and Secretary of Interior David Bernhardt. The task force aims to enhance the operation of the criminal justice system and address the legitimate concerns of American Indian and Alaska Native communities regarding missing and murdered people, particularly missing and murdered women and girls. That is a summary of the executive order. You can find the full executive order in its entirety on the Department of Justice website search Operation Lady Justice. And I'm going to just turn it over to my co-host to let me know what they thought of that meeting, um, either in it being in attendance or looking over and talking to us about the show notes. So first of all, I'd like to just pose this. How does it feel to have somebody that is made a number of different policy decisions be the president that will be referenced in entirety for taking a stand and making an executive order and making a task force on uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, what did that feel like to be a part of a listening session at a federal level, talking to the FBI, talking to the White House? Uh, what did that feel like to listen to that or even voice that? So good afternoon, this is a Patsy Whitefoot. I'm from White Swan uh, here in the Yakima Reservation. Um, just listening and participating in this um, listening session uh, via social media was quite interesting because this time you didn't have the opportunity to be there um, physically with the individuals who are conducting this session. Having participated in this over the past few years, um, I think I'm just hopeful for the families who voiced their concern uh, so much so that it got to the ears of the president and his administration. And so for me, that's important that the voices of families are being heard at the highest level of government. However, when we think about the history of um, missing and murdered indigenous women here on the Yakima Reservation area and around the Northwest, um, I'm just also mindful of the fact that we have cases that have been here for years, for, you know, in some cases, hundreds of years. In the case of my sister, you know, over 30 years, and it's taken this, this length of time to be able to begin responding 
to this need that has been long overlooked. Uh, I can only hope that uh, for the families that as we continue with these conversations that more and more family members will come out and speak about this, this issue, not only in support of you know, our immediate families, but also for the future of our community and the future of our, our families that are here uh, in the area. By that, I mean our young girls, um, you know, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, uh, and also our young boys as well, because this is an issue that does definitely need to be talked about. Um, and one that we need to continue to address in our communities. So I'm pleased to have been a part of this conversation, and I'm just um, uh, reminded of the various comments that I heard during the meeting and look forward to further dialogue locally with our sisters that are part of this program, but also with family members around the Northwest. So thank you. Thank you, Patsy. And Patsy spoke during the listening session and she also was quoted by Indians.com talking about her sister that's been missing for a number of years. Uh, I appreciate your insight so much. The aspect of taking some time, hearing the voices of our family members, I think that's going to resonate with so many of our listeners and family and friends of those that are in this situation. Can I ask real quickly, did you write out those comments when you were talking on the, the phone? Did you have that prepared already or did you uh, just kind of straight go for it while you were on the call, Patsy? Well, I just uh, responded from, from my heart and what I was hearing. Um, oftentimes when there are hearings and listening sessions going on, I listen for what's not being said. And, um, you know, rather than being the official responder, say, from your tribe, oftentimes you know, the family voice gets overlooked or the voice of, you know, the, the sisters that we're talking about, their story gets overlooked as well. And so when you think about communication with people from the highest levels of the federal government, they're not at the level of of our communities, nor are they at the level of understanding, you know, th these issues that families um, continue to encounter when we listen to these conversations. And so basically, I just felt I needed to just voice, uh, you know, my concerns and my vision for addressing these needs as a family member, a grandmother, and then thinking about my own grandchildren as well. And you know, young women and girls that I work with on a regular basis. And so just know the concerns that we have here in our communities like White Swan and elsewhere. I also um, spoke during that and I um, didn't plan on speaking, but as they were doing their introductions, which took uh, about 15, 20 minutes, I'll double check with Lucy on that. She has a good amount of um, highlights. I. I just started thinking. And so I just rapid fired out some things. And so um, I might've jumped the gun. I actually thought if I raised my, so in the listening session, while we were talking, what happened is they did an introduction of all the different people that are on the task force. Then they opened it up for comments. They asked for the first part to be reserved for specific tribal uh, governments and organizations. Um, or sorry, tribal governments, so tribal elected officials. So when I raised my hand, I thought I would be somewhere back in the line. And then it was 
the next speaker, Emily. <laughs> so mine were uh, scratched out on, on um, notepads. And when I reflected back, I thought, did I really just tell the federal government that their response to our Yakima people in 1855 was to start a three-year war? Did I tell that to the White House and the federal government? And did I really, speaking from the heart, yes, but what is the impact and is that truly going to be helpful? And I, I don't know actually the response. I haven't heard um, from other Yakimas other than you here. Um, but I, uh, I, I am nervous about that a little bit, but I do appreciate hearing that you too spoke from the heart and that's just what was coming. And, and I felt like we needed to make the stand. We needed to just kind of say, we have been waiting. That theme and that aspect of we've been waiting, we've been asking for 165 years, we've been asking, we want something and a direct action to kind of follow this up. So um, I might read a little bit and a little uh, bit down the line, but I wanna to turn to my other uh, co-hosts here and get their thoughts. So this was the first time that I've ever listened in on um, and are participated in a listening session um, regarding uh, missing and murdered indigenous women task force. Um, granted that this is the first task force, you know, that's really been out there and, and providing those um, opportunities. So my first impression of it in general was that um, it did take a long time for them to go through their introductions of everybody that was participating on the task force. And I'm not sure how that led to um, freeing up that space for people to come in and, and talk about it. If I can recall correctly, there were at least 300 participants that were um, on the call from various places. And I don't think um, they really gave people the amount of time that they needed to, to be able to really uh, come forth with some of their questions. And then, of course, being put on a timer because the, the listeners, when they had um, a question, they were only allotted three minutes. And then they were given like maybe a cushion of an extra minute and then they were immediately cut off. And so that kind of, like I understand the, the, the timekeeping piece, but I also felt like that's not the, <laughs> That's just not how we can approach tribal communities in general. We have a lot of things to say. And, it, and like you had said, Emily, over the past 165 years, you know, of wanting questions answered. And so now, you know, you're just having to take all of that and put it into three minutes. And if you're speaking from your heart, or even if you had it written down, I still don't feel like it allows you that opportunity to, to get the answers that you want. And in some of those instances too, I felt like there was, you know, some feedback from which they gave, and I can't remember um, who it was specifically, but I felt like the FBI had kind of put this comment back to us, the burden of responsibility. Um, I think that there was a, a, a comment about a message that was being relayed about building relationships with local law enforcement or something to that effect. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And the, the main FBI guy on there had said, well, we wanna make sure that this message is continuous throughout the community. Um, you know, I would encourage you to share that amongst you know, local law enforcement as well. And I felt like that really did not resonate with me well because 
when he said this, this is placing the burden of responsibility back on us as community members to ensure that it's getting out there when it's within our own community that we're experiencing these issues to begin with. And so um, it kind of made me wonder how much is actually going to really uh, be able to get accomplished through this task force. Um, are they really taking the time to get to know tribal communities in, in general? Because I heard some things about training that they had provided or some options that were there where they would um, train law enforcement separately from community and never had this idea of bringing them both together so they can actually create some sort of um, relationship buildings. And um, the other question that I really was also, um, that also stuck with me is, is again, with the, with the height of our society right now and um, all of the riots and, and protests and whatnot, um, you know, one of the biggest questions that had come out is like, who's going to be holding law enforcement um, accountable to this? So um, I felt like that was a, a really great question. And then, you know, they kind of just put it again, put it out there like, oh, well, we don't have the task force is not the one that's going to have like jurisdiction or responsibility to hold these guys accountable. So again, that kind of just puts us back in like this gray area. So that was that was kind of like my overall um, impression of it. Thank you, Lucy. I think that that captures a good amount of what was expressed um, with the previous listening session. So this one was their ninth overall but their other listening sessions had been in person. So I think they had, I believe, three listening sessions over the phone. And um, the comment you made about, you know, you have three minutes and there's a little counter and then it just cuts off whether or not you're mid-sentence or not. That is something that they heard back about a, a lot um, about people being cut off, especially if they're representing um, bigger and larger places what you mentioned about you know what is going to result from all of this i think is a very true message that a lot of people are feeling um and i did want to say that one thing that they are going to put forward is two reports their first report will take place and be submitted by november 26 2020 and their second report will be november 26 2021 um, but again it does go to this question of what can be accomplished is all we're looking for in the next two years is something on words on a paper um, where can we really go from here uh, so I want to give Robin a chance to just talk about some of these um, overall themes right so one of the interesting things is uh, accessibility I think was a huge issue just in general um, I had actually registered and I got everything together and I kept getting these messages and emails about make sure that, you know, you call in so that everybody can have a good, you know, reception and then, you know, life happens. So I wasn't able to be actually on the listening session. And so I was like, oh, great. You know, I really wanted to be on this session. You know, something came up. I was like, oh, okay, I can, you know, look later and they'll have it uploaded. You know, things will be fine. Um, and again, just speaking as like a, a editor and producer is like, okay, yeah, you know, that shouldn't take too long. It's just a listening session. There's not a whole lot of things that need to be done. You just need to upload it, essentially. <laughs> and uh, that turned out to be a very long issue because it's still not available for anybody to listen to currently for those 
you know, as we talk about our tribe, the Yakima Nation, we have 11,000 plus members and I'm trying to think, let's say even half of those people want to listen to this session, only 300 throughout the Northwest were able to listen. Whereas like not even the majority of my tribe, if they wanted to participate or know what's going on, could even listen to what was being brought up. And then when I did go further into research, because I kept thinking, oh, maybe somebody's made notes and they made it available online or on Facebook or something. The only reliable source that I could find was Twitter. And the majority of the Twitter updates came from Indians.com. And I did see your quote about um, the Yakima Wars and the response to violence against women. And then I saw Patsy's quote, um, just, you know, wanting, you know, something done. And that was about it. For the most part, what I could gather, though, is that this was an ongoing theme. And one hand, I was kind of really bitter that, you know, this is such an important, you know, something that needs to be addressed. And the majority of it is about, or anything that's reported on it is about communication issues. But then also, that's also the underlying issue is even those who are in a crisis, who are trying to get out of a... An, a violent or unsafe situation. They, that's the reality of our, a lot of tribal members on reservations and sometimes even tribal members who are urban, you know, just access to communication tools. And so to me, that was an underlying big issue that maybe wasn't addressed. Um, I did take a lot of notes from what I could find online and it really was like, being a private detective trying to figure out what happened in this one event, you know, <laughs> that was only about an hour or so long. And, you know, when you talk about accomplishments, for one, you know, I'm going through, that was the first thing that is listed on their website and that was listed in their, um, like, PowerPoint that they sent everybody because I did register, so they sent me a PowerPoint. And the majority of it is, we conducted a listening session, session you know, a listening session that obviously can't involve people who don't have communication efforts. Uh, you know, we launched a website, okay. Uh, formed a working group, all right. <laughs> Made, a, drafted a fact sheet, you know, and again, like we talked before, it's like, is it just gonna be paperwork that's gonna come out of this? And it just comes along with the complexity of, you know, being a native person in the United States is for one, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, you know, our current president, but then he's also the only president that had brought about this uh, executive order. But then also what is the execution of this order, you know? And then just being able to look at, you know, like the discussion that went around this, you know, uh, that goes around this issue. It's just kind of like, okay, I'm making the effort, but that's kind of all the effort I'm gonna do. I'm just looking as if I'm making the effort. And that's just doesn't do justice to what needs to be done. And you know, listening to what you guys are saying and also reading notes of various articles and tweets. Um, it really was like, oh, that seems like a good idea. Thank you for bringing that up, but it's out of our scope. You know, we're not gonna address that. Uh, in addition to, you know, they brought up a lot of um, possible ways to address this, like uh, the resource extraction brings about a lot of violence against women. A native women in those particular areas because they create man camps and things like that. So it's like this is something that the tribal communities have been thinking of for a while. Um, they're trying to find solutions, but what they're basically telling this task force is these are our roadblocks. And the task force says, 
their, their response from what I've read is just like, well, that's out of our jurisdiction. That's out of like our scope of work. So we're sorry that those are the issues we asked you to identify, but we can't solve them. I mean, it, yeah, it is so important to talk about that accessibility factor. Um, you're right. The amount and number of people that weren't able to attend that session because it was capped at 300, who is out there that's still waiting for the information and wanting to see it. Um, the aspect of, of turnaround time, of response time is very, uh, we're right to be kind of clued in and zoned in on that. How can I get this information and share it with other people? Um, I'm going to read my comments that I uh, submitted. I'm going to leave out my intro since I already gave that earlier in the podcast. And um, I zoomed through it when I was talking because I naturally talk fast. I'm going to try to slow down for this one since I have um, the support from everybody here and you um, have heard it before. Again, keep in mind, I wrote this on scratch paper while I was listening to the introductions, but um, you know, this is what came as a result of that. From March 2020 to June 1st, 2020, Yakima Reservation had six homicides. These are three different cases with three different suspects. Four of those victims, of those six victims, are said to be Native, and three of the six are women. We have over 40 cases of MMIW since 1855. In fact, our first murder report to the United States was in 1855, and the United States' response was a three-year war. Our second report about murdered Yakimos went to the President and Congress in 1856. Those reports have yet to be responded to by the federal government. Still, I remain a part of this process and appreciate this task force listening session. I have three questions. One, how many homicides have occurred on reservations throughout the US and in the Northwest, specifically in 2020, in which natives are involved? Two, NCIC had 56 native missing women in Washington with 20 of those on the Yakima reservation. I don't have access to those names, only law enforcement does. If we are trying to find these women, then why are their names withheld from the communities? Three, we have one woman from the Yakima Valley that was found in the 1980s and she hasn't had DNA taken. That technology did not exist at that time. In order to take the DNA, it'll cost at least $5,000 to exhume her. The Yakima County Sheriff's Office has considered this a priority. However, they have listed cost as a barrier to collect that DNA. Is there a federal process or mechanism to support this process? It will mean justice. So that was my um, comments and questions to the White House and the federal government, including the FBI. Um, FBI Jay Greenberg actually responded that he will look into this data, that, that um, he made clarifications that the national system is put into by individual jurisdictions. I think there's an assumption here that individual police jurisdictions are letting us know who these missing women are, or people, LGBTQ, two-spirit uh, people are that are put in the system, men, and that information isn't necessarily getting to us. And it goes back to Robin's point about accessibility. It goes back to Patsy's point about voices of these families wanting to be heard. 
it goes back to Lucy's point about feeling like you're delayed because of processes that are in front of you. Um, but I just uh, want to turn it to uh, you guys to get your response on what my comments were, or do you think I'll hear back? When do you think I'll hear back from the FBI? They asked me to submit these comments in written form. Uh, so then I had to type them up and I did send those to them. I have not got a response as of yet. So just listening to the conversation that we just had, I think um, uh, Robin or no, uh, Lucy shared, I think the conversation we had also included the fact that the burden of proof is often placed on families. Uh, and when you listen to missing and murdered into this women's stories and and you hear what they're saying, that burden of proof seems to be placed on the families who are oftentimes out there looking for their family members, or they may have access to evidence, or they may know who individuals were, that these individuals were with during the, their last moments, whether they were missing or murdered. <clears throat> so that puts a heavy responsibility on, on the family. And when you think about that, that also means <clears throat> there, there's a severe abdication duty by just law enforcement overall. I mean, to listen to the conversation uh, and the response that was given by you know, law enforcement, uh, the federal law enforcement officials, again, to me says they're not always very supportive of these issues that we have. And to me, it's just another um, issue that Native women in particular continue to face by non-Native individuals who really don't understand the complexity, but also the breadth and depth of the issues that we're talking about. Because this is something that we have been dealing with our whole life from the time we were children being facing racism and discrimination in our school systems and still uh, facing that today in our schools and other uh, formal organizations, you know, uh, churches, religious organizations, and the list goes on. And so as a result of all of that, then we find ourselves caught up in jurisdictional hurdles and battles that we have to address because as tribal citizens of our not only our tribes, but of the country, we face these uh, legal frameworks that are out there and that places these barriers up because of sovereignty and jurisdiction. So we're having to deal with three different sovereigns of government, not only our tribal government, but also the federal government that includes the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, as well as state government. And so it's, no wonder that we're all caught up in this and yet family members are still crying out you know just to get something done regarding their their family members their sisters and mothers their aunts their grandmothers family members who have been missing and or murdered and so un unfortunately this is the you know the reality of where we are today and the various types of legislation that's being included including the task force there are other uh, measures being taken to address this. And I think it was Robin who spoke to the fact that communication is a major issue. And uh, when you take a look at one of the legislation around Savannah's Act, the whole intent is to create protocol and guidelines so that there could be collaboration and partnership and communication with government entities 
who aren't necessarily speaking to one another. In the case of my sister, I often wondered that who was speaking to who, because there really was no communication from really anyone until more recently. And so this is kind of the, the stranglehold that it feels like families are caught up in with our uh, missing or murdered family members. And it doesn't end. Um, there may be some resolution, but you're often left with wondering, well, who was communicating with who and what was being done um, because, because of that lack of communication. And so it seems that everyone's hands are tied uh, because of these legal issues surrounding you know, our, our family members. So when we stop to think about the discussion that the United States government is having now, uh, it also makes me think about the, you know, what's going on in Canada the, with the First Nations people and the number of people that they've had missing and murdered over many, many years. And while we're speaking about that, you know, we're talking about a, a part of our family members as well who are from First Nations too, because we're, we're related to one another and we really need to be having this conversation with Canada as well, because this whole issue isn't just happening here locally in our communities, it's happening worldwide, wherever Native people live. And so it's a conversation that we need to be having with all folks that are uh, experiencing the similar circumstances that we find ourselves in. I agree. I mean, there's so much in what you've said, and I want to um, give a little bit more notes about the, some of the policy after uh, Robin and Lucy talk, unless you want me to go into that now. Okay. Um, so thank you so much for, I think the, I really appreciate Patsy, the flow and conversational tone uh, that you have coupling in international uh, issues with the federal acts and then your own personal story. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, a lot of times when we're talking about this heavy, intense issue, the wait period, the 165 wait period, there could be a lot that comes with that. And I appreciate the conversational tone that you have with it, the strength that you carry. Um, it's so inspiring to me, and I hope it's inspiring to other family members that are going through this, that we can be a strong voice, we can be an informed voice, and we can be respectful and still say, I want more, we want answers, we want them now. Um, Savannah Zach that you mentioned ha does have a number of co-sponsors including Representative uh, Newhouse which is our representative here for the 4th District. We also have, um, you're right about the, Can the Canada connection, Representative Mossbrecker who put forth Washington State Bills has talked about trying to make sure to include that linkage. Canada itself has gone through an entire inquiry process that resulted in a um, report that they published last June. And um, this aspect of, yeah, worldwide issues. What, how are other people impacted when they are missing? How um, do these, what are the connection points between finding justice and finding our people? I think those are very relevant um, points, um, as well as the fact that, um, you know, when, we talk about speaking from the heart and having this voice. When I did that, I had to acknowledge that there are so many people out in the nation, in the country that don't have this time with the White House or the FBI. And I had to, you know, we're going through a time of change right now in our country. So many people demanding for justice with Black Lives Matter and the full range mm -hmm. of it. 
I had to really think, am I going to give a wishy-washy statement and a very like, appreciate your time today. I appreciate this. Or am I just going to say what I have to say because I have these three minutes and I don't know when I'm going to get them again. And so many people don't have them. And again, I really appreciate um, that time and effort. I want to turn to Robin or Lucy again to get their insight on, you know, where, um, what do you think about some of the things that are, we've brought up? Um, so like with the questions that you had asked again, through, if anybody were to just start at the beginning and wondering how do I, uh, become more educated on uh, MMIW, MMIP type issues, you know, either through this listening session or even trying to uh, research this listening session. The questions you asked seem to be pretty uh, fundamental to a lot of the questions that all, all of the communities asked, which is where is the funding for uh, like past evidence in terms of DNA testing, you know, for you know, uh, people who have gone missing who were in the time where DNA testing wasn't available. Um, what are the names of people? Because I've, I've seen it on various, you know, listening sessions. I ended up just listening to all of them, <laughs> and then the ones that they actually did have. Uh, and that was one of the big things too, is like, can we have those names released? Because, you know, we're the community and, you know, we, we'd like to know. And if you're gonna put the burden of proof on the community, why don't you give them some of that information? Um, as well as be inclusive of all of the survivors' voices. Uh, there are so many people that I, I had seen who had come forth who had experience and expertise as not only a tribal member or, you know, having uh, tribal members and, if, and family members go missing. So not only are they a part of law enforcement or ex-law enforcement, but they've had family members go missing and they've helped find them. I've seen so many people come forward saying, you know, I want to lend my expertise and my experience, um, as well as one of the big things that I've seen uh, that was brought up is like, we want those cold cases revisited soon. And then to prevent something like this, can you not treat, you know, our missing cases of our young ladies as not a priority? Because that was something that I'd seen across the board is just, well, it wasn't seen as a priority then. So we just didn't, you know, go for it. Um, as well as in general, uh, accountability of all law enforcement, you know, on the, the various jurisdictions that came by. And for me, as somebody, you know, just speaking from my heart now, it does get disheartening because it's like, you have this thing happen and you have these systems in place that are supposed to address this and it's not a priority. And then you have a glimmer of hope in terms of like a task force that is going to ask you, well, what's not working? And when you tell them it's not working, they're like, well, that's not really our job, you know? And so that gets kind of frustrating for me as someone who's just listening, but also I guess one of the things that I do like is that the communities are on top of their game. They're like, this isn't new. This isn't, you know, as just as we discussed in our previous episode, it's not new. It's been happening since the 1800s, since, you know, settler colonialism had put, you know, started its um, face here in the Northwest or in our region or throughout the United States. And I think one of the biggest things that I appreciated that the community members did say is that they want um, trauma to be addressed. They want some way to either have um, 
victims be able to express their trauma and, and you know, uh, get their trauma uh, validated and addressed, as well as those who have family members, you know, that were victims and they, they have and carried trauma with them too. Because in, in general, when we have all of these external, um, you know, forces that are influencing what gets done and what doesn't get done, the trauma just tends to build and build and you really end up feeling hopeless, especially when you go into the news articles, you go into the various documentaries and things. It, it always paints it as hopeless, but you know, it's also, it doesn't address the resiliency of our communities. And while we don't always um, have the best way of getting to that drama, uh, drama trauma, um, I think that there are some resiliency tactics and resiliency that is present still. And I hope that um, that can come out in the forefront um, after, you know, we get through all of these technical aspects of the operation or this task force, because essentially, you know, I could even see going through this task force and trying to participate could be also traumatizing because it's like, well, I'm not being heard. So, yes. So, in the end, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, I, I am so proud of my communities for always keeping that in the forefront, you know, regardless if it's Yakima or any Northwest community, that trauma is something that they always want to be able to address because um, it's still present today in our communities. Thank you, Robin. And the points about resiliency and the trauma-informed care, um, I think the training also was brought up along those, mm -hmm. those are very important things for our communities to consider. How are we going to design um, these systems? How are we gonna design these systems of response of justice? Are they going to be mirrored from our own legends and our own people's values? Or are they going to be brought in from outside and told to us? That's a very good point. Um, and Lucy, I know that you had some just overall notes and things that stuck out to you um, with regards to the meeting and things that other people were either commenting or saying. And I wonder if we can turn to you and share um, and additionally ask if there's any thoughts about the LGBTQ community or Two-Spirit community that uh, comes up for you. I appreciate you asking that. And I feel like um, there's definitely a whole lot that can be discussed and what has been said from all three of you. Um, but to work off of what Robin was just sharing um, in regards to the re-traumatization of our families and our communities, I'm not sure how many times we've had public announcements made in our community where they were going to address this. I believe there was one in like 2008 from our attorney general um, and then nothing had to become of it. And so um, I just wanted to point out that there's this ongoing um, historical trauma that seems to be occurring when, you know, we kind of step back from these things and, and, and look at it, you know, from three feet away. Because, you know, at then there was hope. And then, you know, we've had multiple meetings that have churned out a number of community members. And I almost feel like even though this task force has been created by our current president, in his third year and the you know the hope for the final product is to be an actual report it almost just seems like a formality of like yes you know we're addressing something but then um i'm actually reviewing what their accomplishments are as far as like in developing developing excuse me um i do think that it does come from a patriarchal standpoint 
um, you know, where they're like, oh, let's put together, you know, protocols and procedures for missing people in the community when that's already in place and it's obviously not working. So, um, you know, let's kind of like talk about what's really happening in between those cracks, you know, where people are falling through. Um, you know, and again, they're just talking about like, oh, well, training for law enforcement, victim services, communities, and families. Well, in a general brush, you know, that's, that's fantastic. But what, again, I, I'm not saying like we all need these individual attentions, but it's important, you know, not just for law enforcement to receive training on how to work with our families, but also on how to take care of themselves. Um, what I've seen with law enforcement is the majority seem to either be in the military or from the communities in general. And so I couldn't imagine what it's like to walk in on, you know, scenes like when somebody has experienced interpersonal violence and it's your distant cousin, you know, <laughs> or it's somebody that you know, and it's like, how, how do you handle that? You know what you're supposed to do and respond you know, according to protocol and procedure, but emotionally when you go home, you know, that is also another thing that you take care of or, you know, you don't know how to take care of it. And, you know, I would like to see more support for our law enforcement in that way because, um, you know, again, there's just, there's just not enough emphasis on mental health and wellness for people who are in victim services, who are in law enforcement, and even for our families, you know, especially when we have to go forth and continuously ask people to come forward and, and read your testimony, you know, whether it's at this outreach event or, you know, it's even, you know, to the newspapers and whatnot. So um, my other thought is with the, the LGBTQ community, and our two-spirit community as, um, I need to slow down, as a parent of a, of a trans youth who is um, actually 20, so they're not really that young, but um, they identify as, um, you know, a trans woman of color. And it concerns me because it's almost treated like it's it's treated like a separate issue and recognizing or asking society to recognize trans women as part of being women, you know, categorized as women in these reports. And then there's also, um, you know, the sense that trans people in general are marginalized within their own communities. So they're even more marginalized because they're people of color. And we don't really have a whole lot of reports that I've come across where it's specific towards our LGBTQ two-spirit youth. Um, and so when I think about how just as women, we're sitting here having this conversation about requesting information from this task force, um, you know, we're already marginalized. Our voices are already not being heard, um, you know, which is nothing new and yet when I think of our youth, our LGBTQ communities and being people of color, our Yakima, um, you know, that just adds an extra layer of, um, I don't want to say invisibility, but it just adds another complex layer of where their voices may not be heard either. Um, and it's something that's not really talked about here, which makes it even more difficult at times, you know, to be a parent of somebody, you know, within the Yakima County. Um, so I don't know if that if that helped. It's just it's just concerning, you know, overall as, as a parent to constantly think 
like, okay, we already know that indigenous women are at risk, you know, and then I have a kiddo who's also at risk. And so we're living in this hypervigilant state, you know, within our community as well, where we, we don't know who we can trust, you know, we don't know if we can give rights and we don't know if that's our relatives. We don't know if, you know, if it's people that we trust and they're in positions of leadership. Um, so yeah, I think that's where I was trying to go with that. <laughs> I think trust is a, a major issue, um, particularly uh, when we're talking about communication for families with law enforcement. And law enforcement is predominantly a male organization. And when you you spoke about you know the patriarchy of of some of these institutions. You also have to take a look at these these policies and these agencies as well because we're you know the session was held with the Department of Justice, <clears throat> but it also included the Bureau of Indian Affairs and talk about patriarchy system with the Bureau mm -hmm. of Indian Affairs and its impact that it's had on us over many many years and still exists with its you know with its outdated policies, et cetera, that still uh, they are the ward of, of Indian nations. And uh, in addition to the task force, you have individuals that were representing the health and human services. And so you have all these agencies that are a part of the task force. And so it makes me even wonder their communication effort with one another as well on this topic. When you stop to think about health and human services, that's typically our programs, you know, like substance abuse, um, early childhood education, Head Start, uh, workforce, TANF, low income programs. And then on the other hand, you have law enforcement over here and BIA over here doing this. Are we really coming together to communicate on those overarching visions that we have for our families and our communities? And so it's a big, undertaking uh, to be able to address this. And so that's the reason I think it's important for us to have dialogue like this at the community level and not, uh, you know, talking with one another, trusting one another to be able to share, have, to have this type of conversation because that's where it needs to happen is at the community level on, a, on an ongoing basis. And try to figure this out amongst ourselves because the federal government isn't going to do it. Um, and we know the state government isn't necessarily going to do it either. So it's really up to us. I, oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to add to that as well, because as you were talking and, you know, there were times where, you know, I would engage in conversations with other community members and wondering like, is it possible for our tribal community to create our own, um, you know, search and rescue team, you know, are we able to do that? Um, there was also conversations around, you know, uh, it was suggested like we have somebody that does biological cleanup after, you know, incidences and whatnot, um, just so it's not placed on the family and, and you know, to have to do those types of things. Um, I think it would be really interesting to see if that is something that couldn't be done, like, you know, community can be unbiased in that way or, you know, like overall come together, which we have seen our community come together. We've had huge turnouts, you know, at our MMIW awareness event. 
So I'd just be really curious to see if there's like some community protocol that could be made where we're empowering ourselves and each other to, you know, come together and, and look for our loved ones, our, you know, our lost ones too. Um, and really just kind of have that autonomy with it. But I don't know if that's, if that's possible or if it's reasonable or, you know, what that would, what that would be. Yeah. Um, with some, the trust aspects and things that you're bringing up are so important as well as the access and the services directly for our two spirit um, relatives are important. I think one of the um, dynamics that makes it tricky is when you're searching for a missing person, who is searching for it and can they compromise eventual evidence in that process? And I think that's been brought up to us. I know that, um, that uh, the coroner's office did just get a cadaver dog to go and do searches or a search dog um, that was paid for by um, Legend Casino community funds. So uh, that, that is a very new uh, thing that they've added into the community um, as a part of, you know, helping search. Um, but the aspects of, you know, searching and our missing and murdered uh, American Indian and Alaska Natives, when we talk about this aspect and what's going on, and the reason why I asked that question is that tribes do not have the authority to prosecute for murder in our own courts. Mm -hmm. That is something that there's a federal law and statute that either goes to the uh, federal government or the county depending on the race or ethnicity of the victim and the suspect. So when I asked the question about how many murders or homicides have taken place throughout the United States that involve natives and or on reservations or even in the Northwest, I was very specific in that because these are the people that have to know that kind of information. These, this is their job, this is their duty, this is their jurisdiction to know these dynamics. And so when you have somebody that either doesn't have that readily available, why is that? Um, and so there's a lot of different things to discuss and think about uh, in and throughout our episodes. We're coming to time, so I want to just ask for your closing thoughts, maybe beginning with Robin, who we haven't heard from for a bit. So last and final closing thoughts on the Operation Lady Justice uh, listening session from the uh, White House and uh, federal government. It's a, it's a complex thing to try to express any kind of closing thoughts because um, I feel that tribal members, you know, from all over the region had the idea that they were going to be heard and from what I can gather is that they felt like they may have been heard, but it's never gonna get addressed, you know? And so, and then on the other hand though, it's, I'm glad that there's awareness around it, even if there's all these complications, the, I think it's definitely um, having this task force has created awareness around MMIW and MMIP and, um, and I do hope people do kind of get angry about it because they should be, um, you know, and if they're frustrated and trying to figure out what's going on, that's the general uh, feeling that I think is appropriate, is frustration. Um, but I also appreciate all the words of like all of you. Essentially what it is, is a lot of our answers do kind of rely on us because this is something that... Um, 
I don't know, has been a part of our lives. Uh, I, you know, it's unfortunate to think, but, you know, um, a lot of us have ties to uh, violence and, uh, you know, against our Native people, against our family members. So, closing thoughts is, you know, please just continue searching and trying to uh, contribute. And I think that's something that as a group want to be able to do is find ways for those who are looking a way to contribute to the cause. And that's also something that we're looking an answer to as well. I just wanted to add this statement that um, was on the listening session during the National Congress of American Indians. Uh, this is online. You can go on and take a look at the comments that were made there. And one of the closing remarks was, if I don't stand up and speak, I'll continue to be a part of the problem. And I think that's so powerful because uh, if we don't stand up and speak, uh, we're not being a part of that solution. And so I think that's what we're attempting to do here is to speak about this issue, regardless of how painful it is or regardless of how angry it makes us feel. We have to continue to be able to speak speak our truths and be able to speak it with individuals that you know that have been involved in this type of conversation over such a long time because we really are looking out for the welfare of our children our, our grandchildren and that we also need to help our own children to be able to speak up and speak their truth as well as our families too so i want to thank that individual who spoke uh, during that listening session um, in february so thank you I appreciate um, everything that you all have said to till now. And I guess my driving point home, there comes a few things, but I, I think what I want to put out there also for other tribes that are experiencing this is that um, it's not happening. We're, we're, this is not something that's happening in silos. You know, this is something that we're seeing across the nation while across internationally, you know, First Nations down in Mexico, um, you know, with a lot of indigenous peoples. And um, I just, I only mentioned that because sometimes I felt like I lived in this reservation bubble and I couldn't understand how things work outside of our tribe in general. And so once I had the opportunity to explore and hear other people's experiences, and started to see that this is something that's important and it has to be talked about, it has to be brought up, it has to continuously, you know, be on our minds um, because, you know, our children are impacted um, and, and whatnot. So I just feel like um, there is a solution out there and we are coming a long way. Just in the past 20 years, we've come a long way of being able to have these conversations. Um, from in person to actually putting it out there on social media. Great, it's so important. Um, I also want to give a war cry to Suquamish, who was also on the call and had reported that they, as far as they are aware, have zero cases of missing and murdered. And when I heard that, my mind flashed to attending Chief Seattle Days along the water, um, with my children and having them dance and having us visit. Um, I, ha I have Skokomish lineage and I just thought, wow, can we get to that place? Um, can other tribes get to that place? Um, the ruler I use is from Suquamish Police Department and so I was 
um, cheering for them. And I really want to give them a war cry for reaching that um, aspect, as well as to echo the point that Patsy and the quote that she had brought out. I want to give a war cry to those that speak their truth. Um, this is an ongoing discussion and please join us for more. Uh, thank you very much. Join War Cry Podcast on July 5th when our episode three airs. Okay, today we have our show episode produced by Robin Kibishi. We have logo and additional support by John Alney Schellenberger from Native Anthro. We have photos by Aaron Reifert. You can find him at Yakima Nation Hunters and Gatherers. We have photos by Nicole Kibishi and music by Lee Sekakwaptiwa. We dedicate this episode to the Northwest American Indian and Alaska Native families fighting for justice um, for their loved ones, or in some cases, still searching. As well as the families of the Yakima Nation and Yakima Valley impacted by the five white swan homicides of June 2019. We are thinking of you and we dedicate this episode to you.